These words from 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 22, having to do with baptism. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. As we know, baptism is a very solemn and revered sacrament within the Christian church. So important that here in verse 21, God declares it to be interwoven with the very fiber of salvation itself. And because God has placed that importance on baptism, then so also must you and I hold baptism in the highest of reverence. And yes, in the various denominations we get caught up in disputes and arguments about the mode in which baptism is to be administered. Some preferring sprinkling and others preferring immersion. And those differences are very significant within the hearts and minds of those church leaders. But as we study these particular scriptures today, I'll not argue one of those modes over the other, but instead ask that you search these scriptures and determine what God instructs you on the matter. And on another day, we'll delve into that part of this precious sacrament. But for our study for today, we know from these scriptures that baptism, the baptism especially that's spoken about here, was first initiated into the church by John the Baptist. And that was even before church had been established, making it one of the very foundational stones on which the Christian church has been built. And yes, throughout the Old Testament, similar ceremonial washings were common within the Jewish tradition and in the temple worship. But John the Baptist was the first to bring baptism as we know it out into the public forum from the temple and from the synagogue. Baptizing people in the Jordan River and in seemingly wherever else water could be found. And in those days as John baptized the people who came to him, he first preached the necessity of repentance. And that's very important for us. As he came out preaching... And this was even before Jesus appeared on the scene. He first preached the necessity of repentance. That repentance is a required prerequisite condition of the soul before baptism can be truly effectual. Because as we're told in these scriptures, the water itself has no special or miraculous powers within itself to save a person's soul. But rather water is simply God's chosen cleansing agent for the remission of sins. 
The real work is done, as these words in verse 21 tell us, listen, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now again, the water itself can do nothing of real value inside or outside of the body. As these words tell us, it is only through the mysterious work of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that our salvation really takes place within us. And our free will surrender of ourselves over to be baptized is simply, as these words tell us, an appeal to God for a good conscience. I want us to consider those words for a moment. An appeal to God for a good conscience. Now those words at first seem to me to be out of place. Somewhat of an odd purpose for baptism. But they are not. These words are not odd. They're exactly what takes place. As you and I come into this miraculous condition of salvation, we are filled to overflowing with wrong and sinful memories, sinful habits, sinful behaviors. And the guilt of those sinful memories and habits and behaviors need to be removed. The guilt needs to be removed, erased, even from our thoughts, from our conscience, else we'll not be able to take an effectual step further into this wonderful salvation that God has given to us. If we're still so overburdened with who we were, then that prevents us from moving on forward. We're so guilt-ridden. But that guilt's been removed. And I want to say that again. In our salvation, the guilt is completely removed. Even after our salvation, when we repent of a sin, it is removed. The guilt of it is removed completely. I want to emphasize that. Because, yes, we do have the memories of those past sins, those conditions that we lived under. But the guilt, the guilt itself for those sins is completely removed and will never affect us again. Do you believe that? You must believe that. The very definition of justification is the removal of our sins to the point that we become just as if we had never sinned. Let me say that again. The moment you and I are justified, we become just as if we had never sinned. That cleansed from all of those sins and from the guilt of them. Now, why do I find reason to mention this so strongly? Well, at least one of the reasons is because one of the greatest failures of today's treatments for emotional disorders involves the digging up of old memories. And not for the purpose of repentance of them, but rather for the process of chewing on them and then doing some sort of secular behavioral modification techniques with them, perhaps over and over again, in the hope that as the person would go through that chewing process, that they will then somehow be relieved and not depressed anymore. But listen, God has a whole different plan in mind, a completely different plan in mind. He promises us in 1 John 1.9, He says, if we confess our sins, if we repent, 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive that sin that we have committed, but also to cleanse us of the unrighteousness that caused us to commit that sin. All of it is done away with. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah suddenly found himself standing in the presence of God. And he saw God's holiness high and lifted up. And the presence of God's holiness caused Isaiah to immediately begin repenting of his sins. And that will take place with you. If you invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to really manifest itself in your life, you will begin repenting. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's what took place with Isaiah. He immediately began to repent. And as he repented, then God had an angel take a coal from the altar in front of his throne and to go and touch Isaiah's lips. And the word says there that he was cleansed from the guilt of those sins. He was cleansed from the guilt of those sins. That, folks, is such an essential part of our salvation. And our understanding of that part of it is essential to our being able to live and to enjoy a vibrant and effectual Christian life. Else we're walking around with just overburdened encumbrance. All those past sins still weighing us down. And God does not want that. You and I have been freed from that. Though our sins be as scarlet, with repentance and salvation, our guilt for all of our past life has been forgiven and has been completely wiped away. And we need never, never bring them up against ourselves again. And neither should anyone else. Let me say that again. Once you've repented for a sin, you need never bring that up against yourself again. Once you have repented... But neither should you allow anyone else. I say that especially for us married folks. Too often, one spouse will not let the other spouse forget something they did 20 years ago. That is wrong. That sin, once it's repented of, is gone. The guilt of it's gone. And neither the person nor anyone else is allowed to bring it against them. And as the words of this Verse 12 proclaim, one of the mysterious works of baptism is that you and I gain this good and clear conscience from those past sins. Here in this passage, for the benefit of our understanding, God is comparing and equating the cleansing of baptism to that which took place with the great flood. That great flood that washed away all of the sins of the world. In those days, the world was so wicked And it was wicked beyond measure. And God used the waters of the flood to cleanse the earth of all of its sin and all of its sinful conditions, saving only the eight, Noah and his family. It's important for you and I to know, fully understand what God's intent in bringing that great flood was. Because it has everything to do with sin and with the removal of sin. That's why he's equating this to baptism. Unfortunately for most of us, sin does not have the same importance and meaning and impact that it has to God. You and I foolishly wink at 
so many forms of sin. Sin that's taking place all around us each day, we just kind of wink at it. Our minds and our hearts have become so accustomed to sin's presence and our senses are so dull to its nature that sometimes we hardly are aware that sin is even taking place. We'll make an excuse for a movie that we're watching. We'll say, well, it only had three bed scenes. You understand what you just said? You made an excuse for sin. And you can't excuse sin. Only God can excuse sin. Only He has the authority to excuse sin. But listen, God's not that way. To Him, sin is ever and always a vile and egregious thing. There's acts and behaviors that that grieve the Spirit of God. So much so that He cannot abide with sin in any fashion or any circumstance. And He said exactly that back in Genesis chapter 6, just before He brought this great flood upon the earth and destroyed everybody on it except for the eight. Let me read those words for you. This is Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now here in this passage, God has given us a window into His holy and righteous heart. Can't you just see it? Couldn't you just hear it pouring out from those words? There we can see His love, His grace, His mercy, His justice flowing through His thoughts. He could observe everything that was taking place with all of the creation, their sinful behaviors, and it broke His heart. And he regretted that he had ever made man. And he concluded that the only possibility, the only answer is for me to just blot them out from the face of the earth. And but for the grace and mercy that he has as part of his character, he would have done that. He would have destroyed them all. But then the last verse, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, his great grace. Now, yes, that mercy and grace extended for another 120 years, and that's what we're talking about here. While Noah was diligently building that ark, God was giving them just one more opportunity and one more and one more. As Noah was diligently building that ark, we have this image of these people coming out and watching Noah. And you wonder, if they had stopped and repented, You wonder, could there have been more people on that ark? But sadly, sadly, sin blinds men's hearts to the truth. And no one else, no one else repented. Watching Noah every day, they did not repent. And so then leaving only Noah and his family to survive. But then we do find these mysterious words here in verses 19 and 20. We talked about them last week. And these words were written several thousand years after this flood took place. 
telling us that the story of those people that walked around looking at that ark and Noah perhaps mocking him. We don't know exactly what they did. But their story might not have ended there. Might not have truly ended there. We're given verses 19 and 20, listen. In which he, then the Lord Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So Jesus died and then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because, listen, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Again, as we said in the message last week, these are strange and mysterious words seemingly offering the possibility of a, a reprieve for those people. And we asked the question last week, would that be possible for others? And we don't know. As I mentioned last week, I personally am not sure what God means by these words. Maybe He'll give me the meaning at some point. But be all that as it may, the focus of this passage is about baptism. And these words in verse 20 tell us that Noah and his family were brought safely through water and that baptism is a likeness to that safe journey that Noah and his family experienced. And just as the earth was cleansed from its sin and Noah and his family were delivered safely from certain destruction, baptism is being said here to accomplish a similar form of cleansing and deliverance. And yes, we must be always quick to add that As these words tell us, baptism is not intended for the cleansing of the outside of a person and neither can it actually cleanse a person's soul. That baptism is simply that evidence of the inner cleansing that has already taken place within our souls, making possible our salvation through the shed blood of Christ on the cross and and through the resurrection as these words tell us here. And again, as we said a few moments ago, the flood reveals so much about the heart of God. His justice in cleansing the earth of sin and of its sinful conditions. And by giving these few people, eight and all, the grace to pass through the waters and have a new beginning, an actual second chance to get it right. The flood is the evidence of the ever-present gracious providence of God. His deliberate involvement, His hand at work in a very personal and intimate way, destroying the sinful, but saving the few. Wide is the gate and the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and the path that leads to righteousness. And few there are that find it. Can't you see that in these Scriptures? That's what He's saying. There are so many out there, friends, family members, that don't know the Lord. You and I need to be talking to them about Him. The Lord has given you and me this same opportunity that He gave Noah. That by turning our hearts to Him, we also will be carried safely through all the floods that will come into our lives. Some even today. And God has given us baptism as an outward symbol so that we can show back to Him and to all who would witness baptism, that we have repented of our sins and we've chosen His saving grace to get us safely through the floods. Now, before we close, I want to re-say some of these things. I want us to understand what God's commands and His plans 
are about baptism. And the first question that needs to be asked is, are we really required to be baptized? Must we be baptized? You know, the Church of Christ folks believe that you can't be saved without baptism. We'll talk about that on another day. But what does the Scripture say to you about being baptized? You'll recall I mentioned a moment ago that even before Jesus began His ministry, John the Baptist was baptizing. He was calling men to repentance and to baptism. And, he, and Jesus came to him to be baptized. And in Matthew 3, verse 13, we read, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus coming to be baptized. John would have prevented him saying, But I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now here, Jesus tells us, in answer to this question, should we be baptized? Jesus says it is because there is a necessity to fulfill all righteousness. And then over in Hebrews 10 we read, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One of the commentators wrote about that verse there in Hebrews 10. The inner cleansing of the soul results in a good conscience, a consciousness of sincerity, of good intentions and desires. You're changed, which will instinctively seek after God. And the good conscience is the effect of baptism. When baptism has done its perfect work, when those who have once been grafted into the true vine abide in Christ, when those who have once been baptized in one spirit into one body keep the unity of the spirit, Christ dwelling in them and they in Christ. The effect of that is the cleansing of our souls. And then there in Acts 2, Peter said to those that he was preaching to, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then, yes. Yes, baptism is something that you and I must do in obedience to Christ. And our obedience must not be a matter of reluctant compliance, but rather it must come from an exuberant heart of love for our Lord and Savior and a deep gratitude towards Him for saving our souls. And as we do that, then we will surely be rewarded with a good and clear conscience. These words, again, as we close, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.